0: This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by ProMega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. So the second I pushed down, the glass tube flew out of my hands at the students, shattered on a table, oh e. Coli, no. splattered all over the first two rows of, of underclasses. glass
1: shards and live bacteria. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we uncover all the ways that you can gain teaching experience while in grad school. Stay with us.
0: And we're back. This is Hello PhD episode 179. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Good afternoon, Dan. Happy Saturday as we record this.
1: Yeah, it's a, a good Saturday. I've been... Oh, your your phone just fell over. Sorry, you okay? I just dropped Earthquake? you. I'm
0: okay. Just my phone. Right. Just my phone.
1: Yeah, Saturday's going great. Um, lots to do today, but I wanted to uh, take the moment to talk to you in between different engagements. I know you've got events and things going on today.
0: Yeah, summer is flying by. Lots going on. Kids in camps getting ready to... Do a little summer beach trip uh, in the next couple of weeks. So looking forward to that. You know, summer stuff, Dan.
1: Summer stuff, and you know what else is summer stuff, Josh? It is this beer that you picked up for us, which transports me to the cool, uh, calmer portion of the world called Maine.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't mind being in Maine right now. It's pretty. I'm. It's pretty hot here. You know, I feel like we we actually had a conversation before we started recording. That, you know, we always seem to talk about the weather at the start of the show. Maybe that's just a human go-to response, but I feel like, Dan, increasingly, changing. the weather is the news <laughs> more and more that time goes
1: by. but That is so true, and we'll continue to be the news for a long time, unfortunately.
0: Probably so. I mean, it is summer, but it is hot here, and I know uh, it has likely been very hot where many, if not most, of our listeners are coming from, whether that's North America, Europe, wherever. So
1: Yeah, well today we will hear from Elena Talboy again and when I spoke to her this week uh you know she's in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle and she mentioned they just don't have air conditioning and so she was she had blackout curtains on the windows trying to keep the heat out she had a sort of a window air conditioner running trying to move air through the house but man I don't think we're ready for this
0: well, Dan, on a lighter note, let's talk about this beer that we're drinking that hopefully will keep us a little cooler. Uh, and you're right, Dan, this is a good summertime beer. So we have with us today the Allagash White Belgian-style wheat beer. And so Allagash White is one that you probably can find that you and that you have probably seen. I know this is a beer, Dan, that I've had uh, numerous times, but I don't think we've ever had on the show yeah, we've we've got it in the uh, tall
1: 16-ounce can, but I think I've seen it at bars and restaurants and places. I think this one's pretty
0: common, easy to get. This beer is a pretty popular beer, and that's not just based on my own observation, but I actually, when I was looking up notes for the show, I found an article that said, a, an article that was entitled, Allagash White, what it is and why it's so popular. <laughs> so according to this article, it's very popular, so... You're telling me we're not starting a new trend? This is already a trend that exists? I guess we're not. But one thing that the article mentioned that I hadn't thought about but makes a lot of sense is it compares um, Allagash White, which is a wit beer or wheat beer, um, to another very popular wheat beer, Blue Moon, which I'm sure you have had, Dan. I have had. I don't think we've had it on the show,
1: but this is a this is like a fancy beer when we were in grad school, as I recall. We used to drink Blue Moon when we were really living it up. Trade in the Yingling for this uh, Blue Moon stuff.
0: Yeah, Blue Moon was definitely a go-to years and years ago before craft beer was as easy to get. But I have to tell you, Dan, I had a bad experience with a Blue Moon <laughs> back in grad school. Easy to do. And that's probably easy to do the very last, well, prominent flavor. Yeah, I think the last Blue Moon I had was probably in the mid two thousands. Um, but I have to say. I'm not a big fan of Blue Moon much these days, but if you are, this is a good beer. I think this is a solid beer. If you see this one on tap at a bar where you are or in the grocery store, you're looking for something light, something easy to drink, this has a really a really pleasant flavor to it. It has a nice straw color. Um, and also, Dan, I, lo- I love this. It almost has a light sweetness and a really bready, uh, yeasty, bready taste to it. almost feel like I'm eating a big loaf of sourdough or something when I take a drink of this. I really think it's pleasant.
1: That's great. Yeah. And uh, the, they mention the Curacao orange peel. So it does have that citrus flavor to it. Uh, they also mentioned coriander, but I, I have coriander in the drawer. I put coriander in food, but I don't think I could tell you what coriander tastes like. So uh, somebody else will have to fill me in on whether this has a coriander flavor or not.
0: There are a number of Belgian style beers that are much more spice forward and this is not one of those uh, i think it's very subtle and also i think uh the wheat base uh wheat beer in general i think has just a little bit of a lighter feel to it a lighter flavor to it than a i guess a barley uh t- typical beer uh, so i think this is really great uh, i would recommend it for i think most people would enjoy an allagash white
1: yeah better choice for the hot weather than an ipa would be i promise Josh, today we are going to talk about teaching and becoming an educator, and that could be a career goal that our listeners have in mind, but whatever your career goals, you want to make sure that you and your PI are on the same page so you can get those experiences while you're in grad school. So the way to do that is to create an individual development plan. That's an IDP. It ties your employees' responsibilities to learning objectives and professional growth, and if you want to learn how to write one, you can go to promega.com slash hello IDP for more information.
0: All right, Dan, I'm excited to hear your conversation with Elena Talboy, and with this episode, I believe Elena will join an illustrious group of individuals who have made follow-up appearances on the Hello PhD podcast, so that's quite an accomplishment.
1: That is true. Not everybody gets that <laughs> opportunity, but I, did, I made her promise to come back and the last time she was on the show. You know, she's got this book, What I Wish I Knew, A Field Guide for Thriving in Graduate Studies, and in our first conversation, we got through parts of it. And and I, I focused on some themes that I really thought would be interesting to our audience. But she had a whole section of the book devoted to education, becoming an educator teaching. And I thought to myself, man, we have not talked about that very much. We have a few episodes where maybe we've interviewed people who went that route. But we didn't really explore the nuts and bolts of what it is you're going to be expected to do as a graduate student, what you're able to do if you push for it as a graduate student, and then what does that look like maybe over a career? So uh, Elena was good enough to come back. We talked for quite a while, so I think we're going to split this interview into two parts. And today we're going to get to hear about uh, just some of the opportunities that graduate students have to teach. And I I think we'll, we'll touch on some other themes in graduate school that are related, uh, Josh, that are maybe a little bit taboo, like having a job on the side. So here's my interview with Elena. Welcome back to Hello PhD, Dr. Elena Talboy.
2: Hey, thanks for having me back.
1: You promised me that you would come back. Here you are. And today I want to focus on a specific segment of your book. The book is called What I Wish I Knew, a Field Guide for Thriving in Graduate Studies. And The reason I wanted to focus here is because it's a topic that we haven't covered very much on the show, and because we had a listener question, so you're kind of part of a mailbag episode here. Let me go ahead and read that to you. Christy writes, I had a question regarding something Dan mentioned in episode 173 that I would love to be answered and fleshed out. He said something along the lines of, most people getting their PhD either love research and don't love teaching, or vice versa. I've been reflecting on my interests and how I am wired, and I feel like I may fall into the latter category, loving teaching and not so much research. My question is, is there a place for people who just love teaching in academia? My dream one day is to be a professor, but I'm not sure I'd thrive in the publish or perish environment. We'd love to hear any thoughts you have on this. And that comes from Christy again. So, Elena, I don't have a ton of experience on either side of this (laughs) coin. and, And so I was hoping that you could talk to us specifically about what you wrote in your book about becoming an educator.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I will preface this with yes, there is absolutely a place in higher education for those who love to teach and don't want to do research, there are a ton of institutions you can look at. They're called Slack institutions, S-L-A-C. There are teaching tier institutions where the bulk of your time is literally teaching and mentoring, and you might do like 5% or less time research. So there are opportunities out there.
1: Oh, that's hopeful. And I had not heard of that Slack, Mm S-L-A-C. We'll we'll provide some links to that in the show notes. But to get us started, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like a lot of graduate school is you get tossed into the deep end (laughs) And you need to learn to swim in the deep end, right? But for sure, with this question about education, a lot of times you are paid to be a teaching assistant, and so Mm -hmm. you're not just tossed into the deep end, there are 40 undergrads tossed in with you. (laughs) You're trying (laughs) to teach them to swim while you're learning to swim. So, you know, I'm interested because our listeners come from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different programs. Can you tell us the The kind of responsibilities they might encounter, the teaching responsibilities they may have when they Mm -hmm. join a graduate program?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there are several different teaching titles that you might take on throughout your time in your graduate studies. So the first teaching title that most graduate students will get is called a teaching assistant or a course assistant. Depending on your university, you might actually have both of these, and that changes your responsibilities a little bit. So a teaching assistant is where you take a one of your very large introductory classes for example introduction to psychological sciences that is a very common level 1000 class everyone in the university yep everyone at the university takes and so that class usually has somewhere around 250 undergraduates enrolled in a single semester at a large university
1: too so, much for any professor way- to deal with
2: Entirely too much. And we'll we'll come back to class sizes in a little bit here, okay. but <laughs> yes, yeah, so entirely too much. So you'll have the professor who actually is the instructor of record on the course. And then you'll have the lab components, which is usually a one-hour segment that is taught by teaching assistants. And teaching assistants are graduate students. On the rare occasion, they might be a postdoc who wants teaching experience, but for the most part, it is graduate students.
1: So, and and we've ahead. all we've all met these people. If if you've taken an undergraduate course, mm-hmm. and and had a research lab or any kind <laughs> of section where you do different homework or problems in this group, you've met this person. And I, and the ones mm-hmm. I have met have ranged from better than the prime lecturer to yep. totally checked out and probably wishing they had never signed up for this in the first place. So yep. <laughs> but we've all experienced these teaching assistant graduate students.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the people who teach these courses are your first year graduate students, and they could go all the way up to your fifth and sixth year graduate students. But the point is, you're a brand new graduate student, you are likely going to be teaching if you have a stipend. And so that's something to keep in mind as you're enrolling in these programs.
1: What are are your responsibilities as a teaching assistant, other than sitting there and staring off into space when I ask a question?
2: So it varies. But generally speaking, your teaching assistant will teach that 40 to 50 minute lab once a week. And they'll also attend the lectures that the professor typically gives. Generally speaking, your course materials will already be made for you. But every so often, you might have to make a presentation or a deck, PowerPoint deck, depending on which word you use, that actually walks people through the lab assignment and that hands-on experiment or whatever work you're doing in the lab. You're also going to be responsible for grading assignments and proctoring exams. You have to hold office hours every week. So that's one to two hours every week that you have to be in the office for students to be able to come and talk to you. You also have to field emails, which happen at all hours. So I always put in my lab syllabus, because probably I have to create a lab syllabus while you're there, that I answer emails within 24 hours, with the exception of the weekend. And I do not answer emails beyond 5pm on Friday, because I am off work. And that is a really important rule to like set up for yourself. Don't answer emails on weekends, man. Just don't do it.
1: It's just inviting so. more emails, isn't it?
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then they'll... You know, you'll have some students who'll email you. The deadline is Friday at 11.59 p.m. They're going to start emailing you at Friday at 11 p.m. saying, hey, I need help with this. And it's like, Mm-mm. sorry, syllabus, read the <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: syllabus. <laughs> so this sounds like a, a quite a time commitment. You said, I've, I've got to teach the lab course. I'm grading papers, I'm attending the lectures, and and those lectures could be a couple times a week in theory.
2: Typically, three hours to four hours a week.
1: Plus, I'm holding office hours. Did I I already say grading papers and exams? I don't know if I did. Regardless, (laughs) how much time is that?
2: You are hired and you are paid for 20 hours a week for teaching.
1: So half of a quote-unquote full work week is given to this. Yes. And you may be taking classes at this time, right?
2: You are probably taking classes at this time. So first, your graduate student typically takes three to four graduate level seminars while they're teaching, while they're spinning up their own research, while they're doing X, Y, Z. You know, this is why I spent so much time in the first part of the book talking about you really need to understand the time commitment that you're giving here. And so it gets easier after you've been a TA for a while. But that first semester is like overwhelming sometimes.
1: It's a lot. And back to the the deep end analogy, how much yep. help are you given in knowing how to instruct a course or to grade papers? Oh. Are, the, are you given rubrics? How, how do you know how to manage office hours and things like that Does somebody help you
2: (laughs) so my program I was very lucky that they had a it was three or four days kind of workshoppy style we're gonna teach you how to teach (laughs) and it was nice yeah it was I didn't really appreciated at the time, though, because it felt like just so much information coming at me that I didn't really know what what I would need to prioritize, what I would be good at and what I wouldn't be good at. And I was not good at a lot of things. (laughs) So I probably should have, you know, attended that one all over again. But, you know, they, they show you, like, here's how I deliver a lecture. Here is how I put together PowerPoint slides. Here's how I review homework assignments. Here's how I create a rubric. And it was great. But it was, you know, a week before starting my own graduate studies. And I'm doing this week-long training. And at the same time, I'm going to be starting to teach that following week. And it, it just, wow. yeah, it was a
1: lot. Not to mention the research, the papers you're supposed to be reading, <laughs> the other courses you're right. preparing for.
2: <laughs> right.
1: As, it sounds pretty overwhelming, <laughs> although you did imply that it gets a little bit easier. That first one is tough. It does get easier, though?
2: It does. It does get easier. So... After you've been a TA, you will likely be a TA for the same course multiple times. And that's really great because then you have a, a quick reference of like what went right, what went wrong, what things you would prefer to change going forward. You start to get a real sense of the course and the information that you're trying to teach. Because don't forget, you are the expert at the front of this classroom. You are supposed to Allegedly. Know allegedly. No, allegedly. <laughs> yeah. I'll let you in on a secret. Most TAs know what they're teaching the week that they're teaching it.
1: (laughs) You know, this is not deeply Uh, ingrained knowledge that they're passing down from on high. (laughs) Yes.
2: So they probably remember a lot of it from their undergrad, maybe, but really they are reading the textbook and going, Oh, yeah, I remember some of this. Let me pull up. I remember this. Okay, let me go learn this part of it and then go deliver the lab.
1: I mean, that makes sense. I I think to hold those details in your mind in perpetuity is impossible. You have a familiarity having learned it once yourself, but to teach it really does take a level of mastery. Otherwise, I think you you end up confusing the people you're trying to teach, right? If it's not quite crystal clear in your mind, how are you supposed Mm -hmm. to convey something that they can even pick up the edges of?
2: Exactly. Exactly. And there are gonna be times where the stuff that you're teaching is stuff you're passionate about and things that you enjoy teaching. I love teaching sections on memory, but I worked in a memory lab for a little bit. That is a lot of fun for me to dig in and like help people understand the material. Then you get something like personality theories. And I was like, Oh. Not into it. I'm not into it. I'm not into it. I know a lot of people who are, and I love them for it and I am happy for them, but I just, uh, I don't want to teach it, but I have to because that's my job. And I need to at least in- put some enthusiasm into it.
1: <laughs> that makes sense. And we're going to get to some of your advice on how to bring <laughs> those mm-hmm. pieces that maybe you're not so excited about into an-, an enthusiasm or at least somehow getting people engaged in it. But if, if I love this teaching assistant thing, and I say, oh, actually, I really want to get more experience at this. Is there an opportunity for me as a grad student, or I have to wait until I'm a full professor somewhere?
2: No, so there is definitely opportunity there. So there is. So you have the teaching assistant level, you have the course assistant, which may or may not be the same thing. If it's, if it is separated out as its own thing the addition there is that you might deliver a lecture to in lieu of the professor. And so the I professor see. might want to take a day off. And so you get to go deliver the lecture for them.
1: You're like that's a substitute the, teacher. Is that how you're treated? I yeah. hope not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's
1: the course assistant. Okay.
2: Um, and the course assistant might have more of a hand in creating assignments, but that, you know, your mileage may vary there. So, but let's say you get into this, you find that you love teaching, you really enjoy it, or you're passionate about a topic and you want to go do a course, you can apply to be what's called an instructor of record. Now, in the United States, I don't know how the laws are in other countries, but in the US specifically, you do have to have a master's degree to teach a to be the instructor of record for an institution of higher education.
1: So that would not be an opportunity for somebody who enters a PhD program. Is that true? I mean, unless they came with Uh, a master's beforehand, because you don't get a master's along the way.
2: Well, it depends, actually. There are a lot of programs where the master's is built into your PhD. And this is especially true of STEM programs, and it might be different for humanities. But quite frankly, the first two years of your PhD are the coursework and a thesis, which is everything required for a master's degree. You might need to go fill out some paperwork for the university. I see. So... Yeah, but definitely, if you have the opportunity to get that credential, go ahead and get the credential because that is one that you're right. The state laws will look at this and go, "Do you have a master's degree?" They might see the PhD and go, "That's great. Where's your master's degree?" You know, so check the box.
1: I, I'm going to have to explore that further because that feels like a great hedge. If I'm the person who thinks maybe uh, I change my mind in the middle, I don't want the PhD mm-hmm. anymore. But at that point, Mm -hmm. if you don't have the master's degree, you're in a negotiation with your PI about how to finish to get the master's degree, where it'd be nice (laughs) if you just had it already and could walk away. Okay, well, let's say I have my master's degree. I love teaching. I want to be an educator. How do I go about finding these instructor of record positions?
2: Right. So there's two ways that I know of, and there might be more ways to this, but these are the two that I know. So one is if you are a TA already, you can go to your teaching faculty advisor and ask them for an opportunity to be an instructor of record. And at my program specifically, that was one of the possibilities that you could apply to be an instructor of record. And if you have the experience and they felt that you would do this well, you could be assigned to teach that course as your teaching assignment.
1: Are they always looking for people? I know that in my department, the faculty were required to teach a certain number of courses, but most of them didn't want to. And I wonder if they'd be (laughs) elated to have a graduate student that did want to.
2: But I will say there is some financial things that go on in the background there that if you're not teaching the course as a professor, you're not being paid and you need to have what's called a course buyout. And it's a whole mess. Okay, Let's go into that another day. <laughs> yeah. So if you're in a graduate program that has TAs, you likely have the opportunity to be an instructor of record. You just have to talk to them or apply for it if you see the opportunity come up.
1: Okay. And then okay. what what does being an instructor of record entail? It must be much more than I did as a <laughs> teaching assistant.
2: It is so much more. So if you think of your TA assistantship as handling just one lab, you have to create your little mini syllabus for your lab. You have to do your slides. And those are typically provided to you. You just have to customize them and fit your style. As the instructor of record, you are responsible for the entire course, not just one small lab section. So your entire course could have anywhere from 20 students all the way up to 150 students, all the way up to 250 students. And I've taught sections at each of these levels. Yeah. So the largest class I ever taught had 195 students at onset, and then it was 158 when it finished. Wow. So there's, and there's no TAs. (laughs) So, you know, you can imagine scaling up to be an instructor of record very easily quadruples your workload because you're responsible for creating all of the materials, ensuring all the assignments are leading back to learning outcomes that your course is trying to pass on. You have to create all the exam materials because as you know, everyone loves to look at Google for exam answers. You got to be, you got to find a way to make exams worthwhile and actually reflective of how much the person has learned so there's a lot that goes into that. You have to create the syllabus, and this is something I do hope we spend some time talking. about. You, you know. are passionate
1: about syllabi. I know this from reading your book. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> I am. I know. I have an entire section on syllabus, but I feel like it's such an important piece that people just kind of throw together and they don't really think about what this document is supposed to be doing. And tell I, it, I tell us do. why. Convince us that the
1: syllabus is, as you refer to it, the North Star. Tell us. Tell us about this.
2: All right. So. As an undergraduate, so imagine you're an undergraduate. Think back to when you first enrolled in a class. The first thing you did way back before you got jaded was look right. at the course syllabus. All right. So first time in college, first time in a class, I look at that course syllabus and I am immediately overwhelmed because it is 12 pages of what the heck am I looking at? All right i tell you right off the bat, half of that stuff is university policies and required language that is supposed to be in there. I don't want that in my syllabus. I want that somewhere else. And so the great thing about teaching in today's day and age is that we have online learning management systems or LMSs. You might have, I think there's Canvas and Blackboard and EDE, and there's so many different options, but your school probably has one. So take all those university policies, take all that boilerplate language, throw it in a section on the LMS and just point students over there and say, hey, here's the mandatory
1: language. You're required to have it. It has to be there. It just doesn't need to be cluttering up what what you as the instructor want the students to know.
2: Exactly, exactly. So you cut out probably six or seven pages just by doing that. So that frees up those final pages to actually present informative information to your students. The stuff that they really want to know about. What is the schedule? What is the grading policy? How do I make sure I do well in this class? That's what you should really be focusing on in your syllabus. And you, as the professor, as the instructor of record, need to set this up in a way that helps them get from point A to point B, which is day one in the class to final exam. And that's your job. That's your job as the instructor to do these things.
1: It's almost like a, a not a contract specifically, but it is language about what they need to do to achieve the results that they want. And yep. if it's vague or not clear that these things yep. are due and this is how you're gonna be graded, then how can they succeed? Is it possible?
2: Exactly, exactly.
1: But it is both for them and for you. I mean, just mentioning that here's when you can email me and when I will respond is a protection <laughs> for your side of that contract so that you don't get inundated yes. on Saturday night.
2: For sure. And that is something that, you know, we uh, historically, while I was in grad school, <laughs> all the assignments were due by 1159 p.m. on a Friday night, which is... If you think back to your early twenties, what were you doing at eleven fifty nine on a Friday night?
1: <laughs> Assignments probably. Because <laughs> I waited until <laughs> the last minute.
2: Because you waited the last minute. Well, you want to be out with your friends. You right. want to be going and socializing and doing all these other things college students do. So, you know, really as the instructor of record, you have the ability to change these things. And that was something that I tried in my first year as an instructor of record was I got rid of the Friday deadline and I actually shifted everything to be due Sunday night at 11.59 oh, p.m. Yeah. So it wasn't much better, I realized, in hindsight. But, you know... Yeah, they
1: were still out <laughs> Saturday night, hungover Sunday <laughs> they were morning. They
2: still
1: out. <laughs> that's yep. all right. It's, it was... <laughs> so, you, you have the power. That's what you're saying. You have control yeah, over this process. If you don't think it's working, change it. Change it.
2: Absolutely. And that's the beauty of being the instructor of record is you own your class, and you can teach it in the way that you think is going to be the most beneficial for your students.
1: Okay. And, and I'm, I'm sure we could spend multiple years teaching people <laughs> how to teach, right? And, and I, we're not going to be Absolutely. able to accomplish that in this podcast. But there nope. is one more type of teaching opportunity uh, that you talk about, which is the adjunct and contingent faculty. What is that? Yes.
2: All right. So let's say you work at a university that does not offer stipends for teaching responsibilities, but you do want to get that teaching experience because if you are trying to stay in academia, you need to have it to apply to almost any position in academia. So you look for what are called adjunct positions, and these are positions that are either at your home university or neighboring universities, community colleges, private universities, anywhere that teaches higher education will have this adjunct position, and this is a contingent faculty member who is hired semester by semester to teach an individual course. And so you're still going to be the instructor of record, but you're doing it in a university that is not your home university or is not paying your stipend. Okay, so that's what an adjunct is. Most graduate students who I know that want a teaching experience or needed to supplement their income, moonlit as an adjunct faculty member so that goes into the moonlighting conversation yes
1: and we need to have that conversation the specifically though if if i'm doing this adjunct job and and we're going to come to why it's moonlighting i'm not getting paid a professor's salary oh no oh no
2: no no this is not like a side full-time
1: job where i'm getting health care and benefits and
2: and this is the thing that I wish more people understood is that in the United States, and I focus specifically in the US because that's where I am, and this might be different elsewhere in the world, but in the US, up to 70% of higher education, 70% of the courses taught in higher education are taught by adjunct faculty members.
1: Seventy adjunct faculty.
2: 70, 70, wow. 70. And these faculty members do not get benefits. They do not get paid the same rate, a full-time professor, assistant professor, anyone with a professor title actually gets paid. They often don't have their own office. They are not given supplies. They don't have a space to meet with students that's private. It's typically a shared space. And speaking from personal experience, the copier never works.
1: (laughs) That's just one of the perks. (laughs) And you're right that the... The pay, at least, you know, in your experience or the time that you wrote this, the pay was $1,000 to $5,000 per course. That's not per month. That's for the full semester.
2: course. That is the entire 16 weeks. And guess what? You're not paid for any of your prep time. And if any of your students need an incomplete, you're not paid for the time after the course ends either. So you're doing that work for free. And universities. Are, mm,
1: mm. Okay, okay, so we, <laughs> before we so, so this is a problem that, that needs to be addressed at the university level. This is this feels like it is preying on exploitative. Yes, it's preying on students and postdocs and maybe faculty who haven't been able to secure a tenure track position. They need the, the money and they need the experience. And so yep. we're underpaying them. Yeah. Again, probably a topic for another day, but it's good to make people aware of it. But but let's get back to this notion. So I need that money, right? I'm a student. and I need that money. Moonlighting is certainly frowned upon. And it's probably expressly forbidden in many programs. So so what do we do about that?
2: So in the contract that I signed, that we are required to sign, like there is no way around this. You must sign this contract if you are going to be a teaching assistant at your home university. And it explicitly states that if you are working as a teaching assistant and you have external funding of any sort, you must report it to your university. And now I know there is a spectrum of moonlighting clauses here so there are some universities that openly encourage it and like tell you to go sell Avon that was in the news this week You're kidding. Uh, Not even. I'll send you the link. (laughs) Invest
1: in my Bitcoin. (laughs) So
2: you have that end of the spectrum all the way to, if we find out you're moonlighting, you'll be removed from the program. And the idea here is that they don't want you moonlighting because they want you to focus on your actual PhD work because it's going to bring prestige back to the university. It's going to bring in research funding. It's going to help them staff for their classes so they have enough people to teach, which would all be great if... Graduate students were paid as, you know, a living wage for all the work that they do. But anyways, so this is where moonlighting comes in. (laughs) Yeah. So moonlighting is when you take a job outside of your home university and you're doing it to make ends meet. And so the person doing the moonlighting (laughs) typically doesn't want to tell their home university because they might lose their minuscule stipend that they have.
1: Yeah. Full confession here. I wasn't like you. I wasn't (laughs) doing something that built on my experience or skill set. I had a friend of a friend who was a graduate student who somehow got involved in being a security guard at football games. And so Uh I could go on Sundays, stand in the stairwell of the football stadium, read a book and get paid, I don't know, a few hundred dollars. (laughs) Um, There you go. And so it was. It was rare, but it was like spending money, and it was easy to do. And I have have some hilarious stories from it. But that is not the commitment that this adjunct Mm -hmm. teaching would be. I mean, that's a that's a Mm -hmm. big time commitment. And so I'm guessing it's a little bit harder to keep those things balanced. So how do I manage this? And how do I? I mean, you write you write the book about moonlighting. Number one, don't get caught. Number two, (laughs) don't get caught. (laughs) Keep up with your academic requirements.
2: Yes, and that is that is the biggest piece of advice I would give is if you are going to Moonlight and full confession, I did many times, almost the entirety of my graduate studies actually because I had a family to support. Right. So, but regardless of your reason why, don't get caught. <laughs> you know, especially if you're looking at that clause going, "Oh, but they're going to take like don't get caught." And the way to not get caught is to make sure you are hyper productive in your current workload. So, make sure you are getting good grades in the classes that you're taking. Make sure you are teaching your sections appropriately if you are teaching in exchange for a stipend. Make progress on your research, which means if you're an adjunct, you have a couple decisions to make. So, The way I prioritize adjuncting is I picked classes that I already had experience teaching. So So then you don't have
1: all the startup cost of creating something new out of whole cloth.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Because something that graduate students may not realize to create an end-to-end course is anywhere from 100 to 300 hours. And that is not an exaggeration. And that is, is
1: not possible to do while balancing all of these other requirements.
2: Absolutely not. So if you can beg, borrow, steal, any of the teaching materials that are available, that saves you so much time on prep and getting the course set up and ready to go. So if you've already taught a course, if you had the opportunity to be a course instructor or you've TA'd a course a bunch of times and you know you can you know, at least get a baseline of materials to make your own, that will save you so much time and effort. So because I had been teaching statistics for so long and I had taught intro to psych as well, I already had a wealth of materials that I could pull on when I started doing adjunct work. And so I used them. I still had to modify them because, you know, the textbook isn't always the same at every university. The student level is different, especially if you're used to teaching at what's called an R1 university, which is a research intensive university. And all of a sudden you're going to teach the same course at a community college. You got to understand your audience is different here. You know, you might be going from people fresh out of high school is your entirety at your R1, whereas your community college has people who are still in high school all the way to the person who retired and is taking classes just in their free time. You got to be aware that your audience is going to be different.
1: So that makes total sense. But I still don't quite understand how you're supposed to like you're still (laughs) you're still going to give lectures, right? I can imagine how you could could grade papers at home on a weekend and Mm -hmm. nobody Mm -hmm. would notice. But you've got to leave the lab to go teach this course. I don't understand how that's possible.
2: Are you going to live in the lab?
1: I, For the research I did, I was supposed to live in the lab, yes.
2: And, and that's one of the things is I refuse to live in the lab. And I, okay. I realize I'm a bit privileged to say that. But also at the same time, your adjunct hours more often than not are going to be evening classes oh. and weekend classes. So here's the other part of this is the full-time professors don't want to teach in the evening and weekend and they want to stick to their nice schedule because they've gotten there and they've earned that.
1: Speaking of <laughs> privileges, <know>. right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of privileges. And I don't fault them. I like right. having a nine-to-five job. I, I pretty well pretty well with this. But that leaves an
1: opportunity open for somebody who's willing to do those other hours.
2: Exactly. So if you're willing to work you know, one or two evenings a week doing this class, you could do that. So what I would do is I would have a Tuesday-Thursday class. And because it was a double section, I was teaching two courses just at the same time. And that's how I ended up with almost 200 students in one course. Wow. (laughs) So... Yeah, but I got paid double, which was phenomenal at the time.
1: For the same amount of hours. I mean, you still had to grade 200 papers, theoretically. Yep.
2: Yep. So I learned very quickly how to automate a lot of stuff. And I only required one research paper a semester where I had to grade it twice over because I gave critical feedback the first go around. They got the chance to revise and add on to it based on additional material in the class. And then so I would be grading that final paper the week before finals. And then your exams are all automated. If you use something called a scan machine, or if you set it up online, you know, you can, you can automate out a lot of your grading. Now, this automation is not going to work for something like English 101. I apologize. It happens. I, I don't know how to help you with that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, yep. so so I think we've at least described the opportunities for yep. somebody who wants to g- get more experience teaching or even maybe doesn't want to get more experience teaching but needs the supplemental income.
0: All right, Dan, I think we will stop it there. And like you mentioned before the interview, I think we will uh, we'll pick back up in a future episode with some additional topics related to pursuing um, educational career, um, including ways you think about yourself as an educator, uh, ways you prepare for those types of jobs, dealing with evaluation, some other really great topics. Um, But Dan, you covered a lot of really great ground in how to get experience with teaching, which can be really tricky to do. I think it could be hard for students to know the best way to do that. Yeah, I don't actually know this
1: about you, Josh. Did you have teaching responsibilities as a graduate student? I know you've you've taught quite a few courses and workshops, lectures, and things as an administrator, but did you do it in grad school?
0: I did a little bit, Dan. So, my department in graduate school, we did have a TA requirement. So, we were all required to TA two semesters of uh, microbiology courses for undergrads. Um, I was at a, obviously, for grad school, a research one institution with lots of undergrads. And we had lots of pre, sort of pre health uh, type students, uh, nursing students, pre med students, pre dental, all that stuff. So there were lots of students taking biology and taking microbiology. So actually, it's interesting, I ended up TAing in a couple different roles that, that Elena touched on. Um, one semester, I was a more typical TA of a lab section, with, like you all discussed. Uh, but then the second semester, I ended up, I think, being one of those like course assistants. I don't know that I even thought about it as a different title at the time. Uh, but I was actually, me and one other person were assisting uh, the the main instructor with the lecture part, with one of the lecture part of this giant Oh, you did! Giant course, and really, that was more from the point of view of, I guess there was a shortage of TAs that semester, and so um, the faculty member needed someone to do that, and and asked if I'd be willing to do it. I was like, Yeah, sure, I'll try that. And how did it go? Did you get tomatoes thrown at you, booed off the stage? Well, no. To be honest, I actually enjoyed that experience a lot less um, than than teaching my lab section, and I'll tell you why. So. I'm one of those students, and and I think maybe a lot of the people who are listening today might identify with this if they themselves are interested in getting teaching experience. I was pretty sure at that point in time that I wanted to do some teaching as part of my career. So I was actually really excited about getting to TA and getting to leave behind lab for a little while and go and actually be in front of students, teach come up with my notes, <laughs> you know, get in front of students. Uh, that was really an exciting and motivating experience for me. It can be refreshing
1: to break the the sort of monotony of the lab, all you know, the experiments that fail. You, you get out to see real people. It's exciting.
0: Yeah, it was a super positive thing for me. But when I was a lab TA, at least the way it worked for us was – you really almost were like a mini professor for your own little lab section. And we got a decent amount of autonomy to figure out how we wanted to teach the course, how we wanted to communicate with our students. So it was almost like once a week I had my own little class of 20 or so students that were my students. And so that was a really fun experience to have that autonomy and to to really feel like I was teaching. Whereas when I was the, the assistant to the course, I was just, I was attending the lecture classes and I was sort of sitting there making sure I knew what was going on. But that was a lot more just grading. Well, actually a lot of it was grading, proctoring exams. You know, it was, there was not a, there was not nearly as much student interaction and teaching. So I think for some people, they might gravitate towards that type of experience a little more. But I really like the experience, I like the performance aspect of teaching. Right. And that had a lot less of that. So that was kind of, more of a, a drag. says the guy with the My podcast. Yeah, <laughs> that's right.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting to me. So, your lab classes were uh, micro lab classes, or they were just general biology?
0: Yeah, these were microbiology, and so, so streak I think plates
1: I re- and things like that. Is that what the lab consisted of?
0: Yeah, so we were you know, teaching undergrads how to do microbiology techniques like streaking plates and Gram stain, and and there's a fun activity. I think a lot of microbiology labs. Uh, probably still do to this day where they'd be given an unknown bacteria and they had to use these, these different tests to try to figure out what bacteria they had. And, and so that was always kind of fun. It, Dan, honestly, I can't remember if it, this is the part of the interview that, that we, we just heard, or that's going to be in the next episode. But I think it was really, I, I agree that I think it's really great, a lot easier to teach something you yourself really interested in uh, yourself. And for me, microbiology was a topic. At least at that time, I was really into. So it was, you know, it was kind of fun to share that knowledge and excitement with students.
1: Who was the unlucky student who got uh, plague or anthrax?
0: None of them? <laughs> Surprise! We didn't get to break out the good stuff for the undergrads. Okay. Uh, no I can't BSL tell you, four. I do have one one really good TA story from those days that I will always remember. And this was my very first day in the lab or sorry, in the lab classroom in front of these students. And again, this was a microbiology course. And so I was in the front of the room and I had these and again, these students had just met me. This was within the first ten minutes of meeting me. And so I had a vortexer in front of me, if you can imagine this stand. So they're all seated in like four or five rows uh in front of me. I'm facing them, but on the table in front of me was a vortexer. Now you know what a vortexer I is. Do. A uh, good way to it sort of vibrates really fast and mixes up liquid, and so what I was demonstrating to them is how okay we're gonna we're gonna get some bacteria on a cotton swab off of the plate and we're gonna suspend it in some bacterial media and then we're gonna vortex that to mix up the bacteria. You've probably done something like that. Well, these were glass test tubes that we okay. were using, so maybe, which again probably not the best choice. But I can remember I'm talking them through this, and while I'm talking, I'm, I'm going through the motions of demonstrating how to, how to do this technique. And so I set this long glass test tube on the top of the vortexer, and my fatal mistake was I push it down with one finger Uh-uh. And what I couldn't see because it was facing away from me was the vortex. The vortex setting was on the highest setting. So the second I pushed down, the glass tube flew out of my hands at the students, shattered on a table in front of a student, and oh, E. Coli no. splattered all over the first two rows of of under with glass shards and live <laughs> with- <laughs> bacteria. Glass shards and live, live E. coli. So that was uh, my first impression <laughs> with my students.
1: On the plus side, the E.
0: coli probably
1: had some kind of antibiotic resistance engineered into it. So
0: <laughs> that's, that's true. great. Yeah, that's true. So uh, <laughs> Good
1: times. Did they did they respect you after that or did it, nobody sit in the front row? It's like, this is the <laughs> splash zone. You will get wet.
0: Well, I didn't have to tell them twice about wearing proper uh, PPE to labs. So. It was all to convey a message. That's right. Yeah, I have great, great memories of, of those days. Well, I also
1: did a little bit of teaching uh, in grad school. We I was in the physiology program, and I actually had the opportunity to to lead a lab section, but for the medical students who were taking medical physiology. And uh, that was exciting just to see. I think this is the reason to this day that I don't really trust doctors is because I was teaching medical students. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit like being in a high school class for some of it. So, uh, you know the experience was good though and off and on through the years after that I found other ways to teach so one of the things that I did was I found a way to make a little bit of extra money on the side we've talked about moonlighting I did uh, I taught some lectures for people taking the pharmacy entrance exam so they had this prep class and so I did some of that but having that experience I think was great and it was a great way to get a little bit of side cash
0: yeah I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up Dan because one thing I wanted to mention. I really liked how Elena went through some of the different types of teaching experiences you might be able to get. Some of them might be, like like in my experience, might be requirements of your program. Others, like you just described, you might be able to find ways to get that experience and also get some extra money, which is a win-win. Um, along those lines, one thing I wanted to mention was I think increasingly I've talked to grad students who have found opportunities to get involved with online courses and I know my previous institution started offering um, online classes, especially in the summer, as part of their summer school curriculum. Obviously, Dan, there are some institutions that are fully online, but I think that's become even, especially with the pandemic, in the wake of the pandemic, I think that's even more prevalent than ever before. And a lot of the institutions that are offering these online courses are looking for people to be in charge of those courses. And uh, and I know that can be a great opportunity for graduate students to get, while well, not traditional teaching, can get some teaching experience on their CV. Also, they tend to pay pretty well for the amount of work that it requires. And I think compared to traditional teaching where you have to go be present from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and drive to this place and do all this stuff, there's a lot of flexibility in teaching an online course that you can kind of fit in uh, with your existing schedule. Uh, so that's one thing I wanted to point out that that people might look into if they want some teaching experience, but also want to make some money and their schedules tight.
1: And, and did you have any experience uh, hearing about people who maybe did violate rule number one of the having a job, which is have you ever seen somebody get caught and get in trouble for it? Cause I just don't know, you know, we, we sort of skated through, we made some extra money on the side, but I can imagine it could be devastating if this actually did end your training and your career. So I think I want to caution people about that.
0: Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about that because, you know, first I will say, I obviously have not been at every institution. I don't know the policies of, of every department and every program, Um, What I can say, though, Dan, is one thing I learned, even from our own institution, uh, that where we were graduate students, certainly, as (laughs) as you mentioned, talking to Elena, you you and I both had side jobs on and off throughout all of our graduate school experience. Many of our graduate school colleagues also did. I don't know of anyone who ever got kicked out of grad school because they had a side job. I actually found out years later when I became an administrator for that similar program at the same university, that that never was actually a written down rule. It was sort of I this see. mythos, right? That was sort of in the, I guess, in the zeitgeist of graduate students. Like, oh, you can't have side job. Or, you got to keep that quiet. Now, your mileage might vary and there could be programs that, that say that. I increasingly wonder if programs really can say that. Like, legally, (laughs) like, are you allowed to tell someone that they can't seek a side job? They can't get employment or pay elsewhere? I don't know. Um, I'll tell you. You are not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. But I will say, I think one thing Elena said is true, and this has always been my take, because especially later on where I was running programs with students, I was pretty upfront with students that if they felt like their situation required them to, or they felt like they wanted to get some side employment. That's totally understandable. But the expectations of the program are that they would give full-time effort to their training. And I think Elena was talking about this too. And I think that's really important that you, for you to consider if you're going to seek outside employment. It's because I think what you don't want to do is you don't want your side job to come at the expense of your primary focus, which is your, your training, your graduate work. Because if you think about it, I mean, why are you doing graduate school in the first place? Because it's super fun? Well, no, because you probably want to leverage that degree, leverage that experience into some greater career that you couldn't do without graduate school. And so it can be short-sighted sometimes if you do something else that sort of shoots yourself in the foot uh, that it, Really hampers your primary experience, which is doing grad school um, that might not be the best decision, so I if think it, you if it slows really you
1: down in any way, then I would reconsider it
0: yeah you don 't want to yeah you don 't want to undercut all that time and energy that you 're putting into graduate school now that being said i'm again not saying you shouldn't get you shouldn 't moonlight you shouldn 't get side employment because, like I said, I did all throughout <laughs> my academic journey, even once I had a real job quote unquote but I just think you want to be smart about it. I think you want to, even as as Elaine was talking about, maybe you want teaching experience, but you might think long and hard about getting the adjunct position at the local community college as a second or third year graduate student when you haven't passed quals yet or you're still trying to get your research project up and going. That might be a risky proposition. Maybe you want to try to find ways to still get the experience you want, make a little money. But in a less time intensive way. Um, And and the other thing I want to say, Dan, is one thing I have seen that is different these days with graduate students and their advisors than when we were in grad school is I think there is more openness on the point, uh, on the viewpoint of programs and of advisors in recognizing that students might want to and need to get experience outside of the lab. Right. And so I think it's important to think about, there's a couple of different ways to think about side jobs and moonlighting. Like really a lot of what Elena, and, excuse me, you and Elena were talking about were moonlighting, but moonlighting in positions that are helping you advance your career. Like yeah, you're, you're, not,
1: you're not driving Uber in between. I mean, although that would be a perfectly reasonable way to make money. The notion of teaching is I'm building a skill that I hope to use throughout my career. Um, you know I'm not I'm not working at a shoe store in my time off I'm I'm trying to become a better professor or whatever it is.
0: Yeah and I think that's fundamentally different than even what we did Dan when we were in grad school I mean like you mentioned we were 100% working is security, different from what we did. <laughs> working security at the football games right and I could see our advisors being less open to you know if we were leaving out of lab early all the time to go work security at the concert t- or the football game
1: i'll tell you my secret of being uh finding a way to make use of your time as a security guard josh what's that dan be one of the smallest people on the security details so that they don't assign you anything actually important and then number <laughs> two make sure you have uh cargo shorts or something where you can put a
0: book in one of the pockets that's the secret <laughs> you can find some other way to live work smarter not harder that's right you always somehow ended up in the far stairwell that no one actually ever went through and you just sat there and read a book for 3 hours and then made a couple hundred bucks.
1: Yeah, it was it was like the emergency exit off of the boxes above the football stadium where if there was a fire I could direct people down, but I think that was the full extent of it. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you know, I was going to say Dan along the lines of faculty being more open to students getting experiences outside of lab that are going to help their career I've seen examples where graduate students, especially more senior graduate students, who have been open with their PI about their career goals and some of the experiences they'd like to get to achieve those goals, being open about getting some of these same experiences that Elaine is talking about. I've known graduate students recently who have gone and taught in the evenings at a local community college or whose advisors actually have helped connect them with colleagues who need a TA or would just welcome some help, uh, teaching, or even in some cases, this can be a really labor light way to get some teaching experience, but maybe just guest lecture, uh, for a faculty member. You're not taking on the commitment of teaching the whole course or being a TA for the whole semester, but you get that experience of getting some material, preparing a lecture, um, giving that lecture. So I think there can be some advantages to being open with your advisor, about the experience you want to get and the time that it's gonna take for you to get it. Uh, because then there's no running around at all. You know, you can be really open about what you're doing when you're doing it. And I think as long as you are making progress uh, and you're doing the other things you need to do as a graduate student, I think a lot of advisors would be would be open to that.
1: Yeah, and I, and I, I think we're emphasizing that it'd be the best case if you can align your side work with your career goals. But I want to recognize that some people are probably getting side work because they have to, because the stipend does not cover their expenses. They have a family or maybe they don't, but whatever it is, they need the extra money. And so they're going to have to do what they have to do to make ends meet, whether or not it's perfectly aligned with their career or not.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And again, I think think it's okay to do that. Many of us do that, whether you're Many people who are not graduate students um, find the need for economic reasons to go get side jobs, uh, not because they want to, but because they have to. And I think as a graduate student, that's something you should be able uh, you should be able to do as well. So, but I think it's worth checking, and I would be interested to hear from from people out there if your institution or your department has a written down rule that says, you know, on one extreme. We might kick you out of the program if you're found getting employment elsewhere because that's sort of one extreme. Uh, because again, I realized after many years at my own institution thinking that was a rule quote unquote that that actually never was a rule. <laughs> so, so
1: there was no there was no fireable offense there, uh, you just were. Scared of it because that was what everybody said you shouldn't do. Yeah,
0: but I, mean, I, I would guarantee, Dan, no matter where you are, if we were to poll graduate students at any university out there today, regardless of what their institutional policy is, we would see similar percentages and probably high percentages of grad students who are doing, getting some kind of income on the side during grad school.
1: Well, there's your homework for the week, everybody. Uh, let us know whether you've got a side job, whether your university thinks it's okay or not. I mean, go check if you believe that there is this rule against it. Go find out, and maybe you'll find out it isn't. You can let us know uh, at podcast at or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. And if you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We do love the feedback. If you'd like to support us you become a patron simply go to our website hellophd.com and click the become a patron button or visit patreon.com slash we would appreciate the allagash white money and thanks to the ongoing support from our patrons
0: all right dan been a pleasure as always and if you enjoyed hearing this discussion with elena we will have the rest of it uh, sometime soon in the future Sometime soon, yeah. Focused on what it means
1: to be an educator and how you can be intentional about that process. So if this is something that inspires you or you're drawn to, uh, definitely tune in next time. All right, Dan, we will see you
0: then.